0: Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of The Algernon. My guest today is Dr. Matthew Bates. Uh, Matthew received his PhD from Notre Dame University and uh, has a master's degree from Regent uh, University over in Vancouver, BC. He has written uh, several books, including Gospel Allegiance, The Birth of the Trinity, and Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And he is a professor of theology at Quincy University. His book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, raised a lot of uh, conversations when it first came out. I remember when it first came out, uh, a lot of people were writing about it. So I'm really excited to get to know Matthew and hear about his definition of faith. Faith as allegiance so please welcome to the show for the first time the wonder only Matthew Bates. all right hey matt thanks for coming on theology in the raw been wanting to talk to you for quite some time now actually i know we've never even we've maybe corresponded on social media <laughs> maybe that's about it but uh yeah i've been wanting to talk to you about your stuff on the gospel
1: Hey, thanks, Preston. Yeah, and uh, same to you. I've admired your work from afar, and it's it's great to meet you in person.
0: Great. So your your book, "Salvation by Allegiance Alone." I remember I remember when that book came out because Scott McKnight was blogging about it back when. Is he still blogging? I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I remember. I'm like, well, that that title alone is obviously <laughs> starting to send a message: salvation by allegiance alone. And then you know, um, yeah, just kind of looking it. And I, you know, I've done a lot of work on the Greek word. Pistis, pisto, pistuo, and others. Um, I'm like, huh, and immediately I was like, I think he might be onto something without even knowing what your thesis is. So, <laughs> why don't you yeah. why, why don't you give us the backstory? What what, what led to writing that book? Um, you know, what was stirring in your thinking about the idea of faith, and then would love to have you unpack. Uh, how you translate faith as allegiance.
1: Yeah, so um, it's sort of funny because that book did come out in um, the year that the Protestant Reformation was celebrated as its 500th anniversary. <laughs> and so a lot of people thought I had like deliberately planned it and it had been you know, trying to coordinate my, my effort to complement the, you know, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation with this clever challenge. Uh, you know, as of course, you know, Luther, uh, the salvation by faith alone or saved by faith alone is a Reformation era slogan. Um, and you know, there I am tweaking it to say allegiance alone. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, of, of course there is uh, that deliberate, um, w- conversation, right. With, um, with, uh, the ongoing Protestant heritage. Um, but yeah, it was not, uh, intended as a poke in the eye in that way, or even uh, coordinated with the 500 that just happened to be, that's what I was writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I just happened to come out. Um, but yeah, the backstory behind it is I, I first got interested in um, what does faith mean in a more serious way? Actually, back when I was doing graduate work in uh, at Regent College, and this would have been Oh, like 2001 to 2003. Mm -hmm. Um, I was doing a master's degree in biblical studies there. And as part of that, we were just reading um, a variety of things. But I I had a course that allowed me to pick a book. And I picked, and he writes The Challenge of Jesus. We had like 50 different books we could choose. And out of those, that was one one of the, I think we had to choose seven of them, or I don't remember. But I I chose his, and that kind of grabbed my eye. And as part of that, he has an intriguing passage where he talks about Josephus, uh, who was a general in the Jewish war against Rome who had called some of um, those who were, um, you know, his allies and troops that were working with him uh, to repent and to show pistis toward him. And um, he uses not the, he doesn't use the noun form pistis. He uses actually the adjective uh, form of pistis. But that really caught my attention as Wright, you know, says like, look at how close this is to what Jesus is calling people to do. And um, it really made me think a lot about like, what does this word, you know, faith mean that we translate? Um, so readily right and just is such a large part of our Discourse, and it really just got the wheels the wheels spinning, Mm -hmm. and yeah. From there, um, I had many, many uh, other occasions and uh, opportunities to think through dimensions of this conversation. But that's maybe enough to for a beginning backstory for you.
0: Well, uh, is there more? Because just the other day, I was doing some writing and research on uh, like the Greco Roman imperial cult as a background, and and especially in, in terms of the language of the first century and everything. And and you know, obviously, pistis. You know, too can can be used as a way of expressing your allegiance to the, the Roman Empire and em, emperor and the empire. Are there a lot of other references like that, like the Josephus one, where it has what seems as very Christian, almost flavor to it, or using common language? Is that fairly common, or is that one just stand out above all else?
1: Well, you know, that's the one that comes to my mind, but um, certainly Pistis um, as loyalty is not uncommon in Josephus. Um, okay. In fact, there was a major study done on Josephus's faith language. I'm trying to remember the name of the study, but it was one of the categories he looked at, um, you know, was uh, loyalty like categories. <laughs> so there's, um, yeah, it, it's a well-known thing. Um, and uh, the best resource that would kind of bring together like a comprehensive look at Pistis in the Greco-Roman world is, is Teresa Morgan's uh, book uh, and that's called um, Roman Faith and Christian Faith. Um, and she looks like, uh, she spends like a good chunk of the book just looking at Greco-Roman resources uh, and showing the breadth of how the word pistis was used. Uh, but then um, going beyond that, she, she actually looks at the Septuagint and then looks like exhaustively through the New Testament and, and moves through it mm-hmm. uh, looking at um, pretty much every use of the word pistis, if I remember right. It's At least it's fairly comprehensive. Wow. Um, and she uh, yeah wants to develop a full taxonomy of, of the meaning of this word. But she would demonstrate that it frequently means loyalty or allegiance. And this is not something that anybody would, I, I don't think there's anyone who would dispute that yeah. claim.
0: Can you, okay, so can you unpack the difference between the. English word faith and the English word allegiance because these are two kind of competing or are they competing yeah. or is there an overlap here? You know, like, when you yeah, say- there's
1: an overlap. Okay. And, and I think that's part of the issue is that probably, you know, back in the day when, um, you know, Wycliffe, Tyndale, you know, um, uh, Miles Coverdale, people were doing early work on, um, English translations of the, of the Bible. Um, yeah. Words like trust and like that connected to troth or like, um, ideas of, um, you know, of of faith, like we're connected to certain kinds of social constructs and contracts that just are not as large today, but we still use them sometimes. You know, like um, we might think of um, a trust, like in a financial institution, like, you know, whenever someone establishes a trust, right? Or um, like um, we might say that that person broke faith if they violated uh paying back a contract right they agreed to pay back uh they they agreed to pay back a certain amount and then they broke faith by not following through um that's the kind of um place where we might see a lot of overlap between faith and loyalty right i um, mean as you need to follow through with what you're doing um and so uh, or faithfulness right would be a very common word that right. we would use today um, but there's a lot of disconnect too, and that's part of why I think we need to re—we need to mobilize this allegiance and loyalty language and kind of bring it back to the foreground because words shift meaning over time, and I think mm-hmm. our English word faith has come increasingly to mean like believing things without evidence. Right, mm-hmm. and um, you would see people like Richard Dawkins, like you know a prominent um, atheist critic of Christianity, who would criticize Christians for just believing things even though there's no evidence, right? And he says th- he seems to think that's what the word faith basically means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, it, or just it, or it can be reduced just to intellectual assent, mm-hmm. right? Where we have like you know, especially the Gospel of John, which uses the word faith a lot. Um, people like sometimes have drawn on the Gospel of John to to say that oh, really, all you need to do is believe that Jesus is the Savior yeah okay he's the lord too but you don't really, that's not really pertinent for your salvation all you need to do is assent that he's died for your sins that's called the free grace movement right that was a major mm-hmm. movement in the 80s i guess mm-hmm. um and and so we we do have people who have used the word faith or belief in ways that um yeah that are just um not really well connected with the ancient word pistis right which is what we're trying to get
0: at what about so it make it does does make me think of Romans 10 9 and 10 which has become One of the more well-known memorized passages when people think about faith or what's the basic commitment that a Christian needs to have, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Um, That does seem to have that flavor of kind of just assent, just confess, just say it. And you have to actually believe it, too. Yeah. But so how would you understand that passage?
1: Yeah, that well, the con, the, the word confess there in Greek um, is homologato, which actually has to do with a public proclamation. So it's um, like we tend to like the word maybe profess would be a better translation. Like it means like to vocally profess. And so it, it's not something that's just a private like assent. Um, so even the idea that if you confess Jesus is Lord, it, that would, you, the, 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 the most natural way to construe that in the Greek would be to publicly proclaim it, like something you would do as part of your baptism. Like if um, and in an ancient baptism, um, I think we have evidence that would suggest that you probably swore loyalty to Jesus. Uh, that's probably what it means to be baptized into his name was connected to taking an oath of allegiance to him. So that oath of allegiance would be to say, Jesus is Lord. That's what you were doing. Jesus is King, right? Jesus is the Christ. All those things would have been way in which you're affirming, like he's the king of my life, mm-hmm. um, and so then, and if you believe in the heart, like yeah, certainly that. Uh, um, any any time we see the 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 word pistuo, right, the verb followed by hati, right, um, uh, which is a Greek word that means that. Uh, in these constructions, it's usually going to be involving an intellectual assent idea. If you believe that uh, a, a man went to the moon, right, we're we're asking, do you do you agree that that happened? Do you intellectually assent to that? And in ancient Greek, it's no different. So we do see that Pistio is used sometimes just for intellectual assent. Um, and in that passage, that would be one case where it, it is more in that direction. It's the, the use of pistuo in that mm-hmm. particular um, mm-hmm. you know, passage is not in the allegiance direction. But the, the idea of confessing Jesus as Lord, right, is more in the allegiance direction okay. um, within that particular passage.
0: Well, especially, I mean, he's writing to Roman Christians at the heart of the empire and he's saying publicly profess that Jesus is kurios, Lord. And mm-hmm. of all the emperors, Caesar Nero, who was a Caesar at that time, claimed to be Lord kurios more, more often than any other emperor. Um, so that to publicly say Jesus is Lord is, could be kind of a politically dangerous thing to say, you know, like, yeah, it's, like it, it's not just this, and I, and I just wonder, even that, like, that aside from just the linguistics of pistis confess allegiance faith whatever like just saying jesus is lord out loud that is a sign of allegiance right i mean aside from the linguistic debate
1: yeah no i would absolutely agree with that yeah and i, I think that yeah we don't want to, to 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 get too narrowly focused on a specific word group right yeah the mm-hmm. concept is broader than that mm-hmm. uh, and we could see yeah multiple signs of evidence that um, yeah that allegiance is involved and we other have like lots of passages that speak about you know um, obeying the gospel for instance mm. right and what does that mean right um, well I think you can you can you can by careful analysis you can show in passages like i mean, in the Thessalonian correspondence in the first chapter right um there's a, a, a in, in verse four right you have a um, a passage where it talks about um, showing faith or loyalty uh, through persevering through trials and then later we find out just several verses later, um, that those who obey the gospel are those who are going to make it through these trials, who are going to experience vindication when the Lord Jesus brings judgment. So we're invited to see a tight link between you know loyalty to King Jesus and obeying the gospel, and that this is what results in salvation or vindication when the Lord Jesus brings His judgment. So that would be you know where. On the one hand, we're paying attention to the word pistis, right, and how it's used as it, as it refers to faithfulness, right? But on the other hand, we see that it's closely related to um, other constructions like obeying the gospel and that it seems to be synonymous mm-hmm. with obeying the
0: gospel. Or Romans 1, 5, the obedience of faith, is that, I mean, that'd be another... Uh. Yeah, that's a, that's
1: a passage I spend a lot of time with, <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, it's interesting because right before that, right, you have an articulation of the gospel as, you know, Paul begins Romans by saying who he is, right, a servant, you know, an apostle um of this uh, you know the, uh, this king right uh, but then he begins to talk about how the gospel was promised in advance you know and that this gospel actually uh, is connected to uh, the promises that god made to david right? Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. Paul's language is kind of precise uh, in that passage, right? As he actually says that, th- th- that there was this, uh, the son of God, right? That he came into being by means of the seed of David. If we look at his language really exactly, Paul uses the verb, um, uh, the, in- instead of the, the geno over for begetting, he uses mm-hmm. genomai, to mm-hmm. be or to become. And so there's a, this idea that he came into being by means of the seed of David, but then Paul qualifies it and says, that's only according to his flesh, katasarka, just talking about his flesh right and so it's a statement about jesus's incarnation right and so paul says the gospel is promised in advance and that the gospel is about the son uh becoming incarnate into the line of david and then he goes on and says that um that that he actually was uh, raised from among the dead ones and that what triggered his resurrection from the the dead ones um uh, or that this resurrection from among the dead, like led to him being installed as the son of God in power, right? So he uses very specific language that Jesus is now the son of God in power. I would understand that to be a statement of Jesus's enthronement. He's now been installed mm-hmm. at the right hand of God. So when Paul talks about the gospel in Romans 1, 2, 3, and four, right? It's about the promises of God being fulfilled. The Old Testament promises about the incarnation, about Jesus becoming enthroned at the right hand, him assuming a station of power. And then in, in Romans one, five, right? The Passage you just mentioned, uh, Paul talks about Jesus Christ our Lord, um, you know, through whom we receive grace and apostleship for the obedience of pistis among all the nations, right? And this obedience of pistis means that like it's loyal obedience or allegian obedience. We're we're uh, like that's the purpose of the gospel is so that all nations will become allegiant to King Jesus. Um, so yeah, I would I would see that all as very intimately related to the gospel. That's that's a perfect passage.
0: So it's it's I mean, if to put it in different terms, so like faith. As it's traditionally understood, does feel kind of a little passive, whereas allegiance seems a little more active. Would that be a a, a broad is, kind of distinguish between the two? I think
1: that is a fair way to describe it. And um, and when we pay attention to how the New Testament speaks about faith, it's a human it's a human initiated action. Like it's something that humans do. Um, and there are some theological traditions that want to make it a purely received action um they want to say like no actually you can't originate anything yourself god has to originate anything good that you you happen to do so that god has to originate the faith before you could do it or something along those lines but the new testament just doesn't just doesn't prefer to speak that way um that's a that's a theological overlay um, beyond the New Testament, the New Testament just doesn't doesn't prefer to speak about faith that way. It is an active idea, and it's an active idea that humans originate. Um, so uh, we we want to be careful. I just think to just respect the New Testament witness. That's how the New Testament prefers to speak. So yes, that's part of what I'm doing is seeking to recover that um, that more active dimension of of how faith is is described in the New Testament. That it's not something that's purely receptive.
0: So I guess that so that I mean I. I I wanted to wait to get here because I wanted to unpack what you you mean by, but I could could totally understand or I could totally hear people, especially in a very Reformed or especially a Lutheran tradition say, whoa, 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 this sounds like works righteousness. If we're justified by allegiance and if allegiance is a human action, human initiated action, if it has to do with even obedience, then... What in the world? We just undercut the entire Reformation. Have you gotten that critique yet? <laughs> yeah, sure. I've heard, I've heard things in that direction. Yeah. Um, I think that the reality 500 years is ago, that- you could find yourself on a stake somewhere with yeah. fire being lit. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, the reality is is we just need to deal seriously with what the New Testament teaches, right? Um, And the New Testament presents faith in this way. Um, So there's different ways of thinking about how that works. Uh, My claim would be that um, we should understand faith as something more like loyalty or obedience, and that is an embodied thing. Like, the idea that pistis is purely mental is something that just cannot be substantiated on the basis of a careful reading of our ancient texts, the Bible, and outside the Bible. Uh, That pistis was primarily externalized and relational would be the way I would summarize yeah. it. And there I'm again drawing primarily from Teresa Morgan's work, where she, I think shows that exhaustively in her kind of comprehensive book on Rome on, um, on faith in the Roman world and in the Christian you know in the, in the mm. New Testament. So um, what she t- tries to demonstrate is uh, what, what I mean by that is that faith is externalized, meaning that when people talked about faith, it was mainly about observing somebody's faithful behavior. Like so um, when, when somebody is doing something that is described as faithful, like or pistis where they're demonstrating their trust in some way, but it's demonstrated or it's a shown trust, uh, or they're um, behaving in a way that shows that they are a reliable person. They're, 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 they're performing in a faithful way or a loyal way. Um, and so it was something that was externalized primarily as people conceptualize it. That doesn't mean it didn't have an internal dimension. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that there wasn't something mental going on in people's minds, but it just wasn't foregrounded. People were more interested in observable pistis. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was what, when people thought about what does pistis mean, it was primarily activity that they had in view and a virtue, uh, that was connected to that activity. Um, so that's what I, when I say it was externalized, that's what I mean. And then it was relational. It was primarily, um, something that uh, had to be performed with respect to someone else. Um, mm. that like you're, you're, you're being, um, faithful, uh, with respect to this or that person or that situation or this office or this duty. Mm. Right. And so that's a, mainly a relational idea as well. So, um, yeah, so the one way then of putting the pieces together then would be to understand works as being something that are not completely the opposite of faith, right? But actually, can be understood in a way that they fold within allegiance. So that allegiance is the the larger category, and that um, good deeds might be part of allegiance would be how you can make sense of that without falling into a works righteousness.
0: Well, and also like that, even the term works, and this is I'm glad you went there because I was going to go there. Like, I mean, you know for for. Where do we want to start? I mean, for, for our audience, they may not be familiar with the debate. I mean, even the phrase works of the law in Romans and Galatians and other passages, and sometimes even the shorthand works, sometimes I think a lot of Christians will read that and just in their mind, they think works as obedience. And and that's you know that's a possible way to interp- interpret that. But there's another reading of that that says, no, works is not like Christian obedience. It's not the good stuff. It's actually... Um, you know, in, in some views, works of the law could be these, you know, Jewish distinctives that were kind of designed to keep Gentiles out. So it has almost a yeah. s- sociological dimension to it. It's not just, it's not just abstract human obedience to God and God, you know, the and, and the Paul's saying, no, that you're not, that has nothing to do with your salvation or whatever. So can you, you, <laughs> I, I was so knee deep in this stuff. I mean, for years, and I don't think I've touched it since maybe 2012. <laughs> so it's it's not fresh in my mind. Can you maybe help us understand that just that dimension? Just when it says justification by faith not by works or not sure. by works of the law, what are some different ways we can understand that contrast? Yeah,
1: well I think you've already, you know, um pointed up like the key difference, right, that um, we, we have the question, does, like, anytime we see the word works, like, our our knee-jerk reaction to that might be to think about any human deed, right, any doing whatsoever, and that's partly because that's uh, the legacy of the, the early Protestant Reformation, right, would be to construct it that way. Uh, but, you know, in light of larger conversations that have been happening in the last 50 years, especially in New Testament studies, there were conversations before that, but, but really with E.P. Sanders, Paul and, Paul and Palestinian Judaism in 1977, we began to um we go through a whole era of reassessment of all of that for the last 50 years right and um, the upshot of that is that I think the the biblical studies community would by and large see that um, works of law does not mean the same thing as works and that um whenever we see that phrase even Paul whenever Paul uses the bare word works um sometimes he 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 clearly intends works of law. Mm-hmm. So, Paul even shorthanded sometimes works, uh, and he actually means works of law. And we can actually prove this in certain passages. Uh, I don't w- have one off the top of my head. I want to say it's Romans 9 33, uh, but without us actually flipping around and um, looking through passages. But there are a number of passages where we have abbreviations where Paul uses the word works, but you can yeah. prove in context because of how he uses the phrase and qualifies it immediately afterwards. He means works of Torah. Um, so, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, as we think through this this larger issue, then, yes, I think that Paul is not against good works, like he obviously wants us to do good works, and he even says that we'll be judged on the basis of our works, and he even says this is part of the gospel, uh, as we have—this um, uh, would be in Romans 2— uh, Right as we have um, the passage where he speaks positively about about um, judgment according to the works, Mm -hmm. and and says this is all actually part of his gospel ultimately.
0: So there are passages, and I I was thinking like James two. Could this be you know there's a notorious issue with Romans three and James two? Romans three saying you know we're justified by faith not by works, and then James seems to say the exact opposite. Like nope, we're justified by works, not just by faith. I mean it looks like a delit like. Yeah, like a like a blatant contradiction. But um, could one of the solutions be? I mean, of course, this is you know what several already proposed. I'm not coming up with it, but like that the the kind of works that James is talking about is different than the kind of works that Paul's talking about. And there in James 2, I mean, there he is talking. When he says works, there he doesn't say works of the law. I don't think. Yeah, I'm almost positive he doesn't. He says works, and there he is talking about the positive kind of actions from Rahab and Abraham and. And others that they, their their belief in God, their their allegiance to God, led to radical acts of obedience. Would that be right. Like works. And yeah,
1: I think there's, there's room to see that. Yeah. That, that, um, yeah, that James is speaking about works in general and that Paul has in view more works of Torah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that those are the same thing. Mm-hmm. And also I think that uh, the allegiance proposal might pot- potentially help with some of this, right. Seeing that, like, um, that what is meant by faith, right. Is maybe not so different between Paul and James. Sometimes people have also said, well, the solution is Paul and James just means something different by faith too. But if they both mean something more like faithfulness or loyalty, right. Then, um, then I think there's more room to see why James would say faith without works is dead, right? As he's wanting to say, like, you know, our our loyalty to, towards Jesus, right, is a dead thing unless it's actually actualized by works. Uh, but Paul can speak negatively about works sometimes because he has in view works of the law, but positively about works in other places uh, because he has in view, um, like, that works are part of how we embody our allegiance, um and so that it's not just about any human doing but certain but our actions actually um you know can positively contribute to our salvation as part of an overall allegiance. So we're not saved by doing good deeds, we're saved by our allegiance to Jesus, but nevertheless the allegiance is manifested through our bodily activities.
0: So so just when you say it like that that sounds almost the same as So I grew up in in the whole lordship salvation free grace debates in the 80s and 90s, Mm -hmm. and you know Mm -hmm. being I was on the MacArthur side of things, and that made perfect sense when he was addressing when he was talking about lordship salvation is how it was framed against the free grace movement. I was like really persuaded of that kind of side of things, which is funny because then years later, you know, N.T. Wright comes on the scene, starts talking about what sounds like a sneeze away from. Lordship salvation, but everybody got all all over them. (laughs) I'm like, this doesn't sound, there might be some wording that's a little different, but it didn't sound a whole lot different than what MacArthur and others were arguing for back in the 80s. Um, But your last phrase sounds almost exactly what MacArthur would say that a true faith commitment will lead to or issue in an obedient response. You know, I mean, do you see, are you familiar with that? I mean, that's kind of, I mean, it's not really, I don't know if it's around anymore and it's, really really was happening in certain evangelical circles. I don't even know if you you were yeah <laughs> in it at all. But um yeah, do you see what you're saying is terribly different than what the Lordship people were saying?
1: Yeah, I would say it's very much similar to what the lordship people were saying, and clearly MacArthur was right in that debate. The debate was primarily with, um, what, what's his name, Hodge Zane Hodges, Zane Hodges right, Hodges. Uh, was the free, free grace guy and some other people, but yeah, and MacArthur, I think, put a pretty serious beat down on all, all of that correctly, and, um, you know, and what Hodges was saying completely doesn't align with the, any classical Protestantism at all, like the idea that, like, somehow our works are completely irrelevant, right? The the, the tra- traditional Protestant position coming in from Luther Calvin, the Protestant Reformation, right, is that our works are evidence of faith, right? And so that, like, first we are justified, and that we get right with God, um, and that that happens by faith alone, and that that the works are a confirmation of that secondarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I think MacArthur would argue, if I understand him right, um, today would be something along those lines, um, and that our, our lordship then is partly uh, or the Lordship of Jesus is is relevant, obviously, to an ongoing, you know, faith commitment, uh, and to the outworking of that salvation as part of our, you know, our good works will come as confirmation. Um, but I, I would not phrase it quite that way, because it's, it's almost like there's a cause and effect relationship um, that's being articulated there, um, that, like, it's, the, the idea seems to be, first, you have to have, like, real faith. And then once you do, then you have this transaction of justification, uh, and then you get right with God. And then only then can you then proceed to do good works, and that those good works then are evidence that your faith was genuine. I just don't see the Bible supporting that kind of articulation. I don't see the Bible as supporting a a distinction between justification and sanctification in that way. So... um, the, the, the traditional ide- idea that you get you get justified, and then that sanctification comes with it and uh, flows out of the same union with Christ and is the um, the outworking or the flip side of justification. Um, I think that's all—that business about the sanctification business is, is essentially made up as a philosophical position, really by John Calvin. Um, we're kind of getting really into the weeds here um, with some of that, but I the, the upshot is I would articulate it just slightly differently. Um, I would say that um, that that what it means to have faith is simply something embodied from the get go. So there's not something that's a cause and effect relationship between it and our bodily activity. Like so, at first we have to do something mental. Would be almost what um, you know MacArthur might might would argue i would imagine right Mm -hmm. and then um after we do the mental thing then good works can follow with our bodies Mm -hmm. i think that misunderstands what pistis means from the Mm get-go pistis is an embodied thing from the start um so there's no such thing as first like doing the mental thing right and then somehow then your body follows suit this is fundamentally to misunderstand what pistis means because it's externalized and relational from the beginning
0: so you would want so yeah that makes sense so like slicing and dicing it all apart, making sure we keep justification in a different category. Like is it's a hard line between justification and sanctification. I, what I hear you saying is that the, just the concept of allegiance, which is a better rendering of pistis, faith, I don't want to say confuses the two because that, even that phrase says that the two are different. It, it, it combines those two into one kind of response or... Yeah. is that is that what you say I, I, I yeah no understand. that's fair
1: I think that um it's fair to say that like certain kinds of works are not antithetical to faith or the opposite of them right certain things we do with our bodies are an outworking of our loyalty um or or, or even just an embodiment of our loyalty from the get-go right like when like when if I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord when right? I'm doing something with my body right from the beginning that's an externalization of my faith mm. right? like, my faith was something that was embodied from the very beginning. Um, and so I, I, I guess I would articulate it that way. And yeah, the justification, sanctification thing, I, I don't want to confuse our listeners in any way, as uh, that's a, a big argument um, that uh, that I can't get into. But um, fully, at least in this space, um, I, I, I do write on this in Salvation by Allegiance alone a bit. I have a forthcoming book that will deal with it eventually um, more. Uh, but the reality is, is Paul's own categories would be just justification. He doesn't really have a category that's a separate category category for personal sanctification. Like Paul believes in a present uh, a, a past, a present, and a future dimension of justification, and he doesn't use sanctification to describe the outworking of salvation personally. Um, that's a, that's a, essentially a made-up category to deal with the idea that we need to have um, an initial justification um, that is by faith alone, and was a philosophical category that was really invented by, um, truthfully, mostly by John Calvin as a way of articulating um, his position. So I just wouldn't. I, I just don't think it's it's precise enough. And dealing with the Bible's own categories.
0: So, wow, that's interesting. Um, would would do you think your view put you at odds with traditional Lutheran and then later Reformed uh framing of justification by faith? Like basically, I mean, this is a huge part of Protestantism. Would you say that yes, my m- the way I read the scriptures does put me at odds with that aspect of that tradition? I just think they're getting the Bible kind of wrong, or at least not interpret it fully correct?
1: Yeah, I mean I would say that it's a it's you know it's a new scholarly proposal that needs to be assessed by other scholars to see what they think, but I would say that the You know, the Protestant Reformation is a large thing, and um, you have the Magisterial Reformation, of course, like with, with Calvin, with Luther, uh, with Zwingli and others who—you know, those Protestants who believe that, um, that the Protestant Reformation needed to march hand-in-hand with the magistrates or the rulers or the mm-hmm. authorities or the government, right? And that um, you needed to—if you wanted to make any changes theologically, that needed to be approved by the government, right? Um, and then on the other hand, you have the Anabaptist tradition, right, um, that does not see things that way. Um, and they want to move more quickly than, um, than Zwingli wants to move and uh, Calvin wants to move, right? And um, they end up heading off on their own. Uh, and so certainly within more of the Anabaptist expressions, I think that um, there are things more like what I'm saying. Okay. Um, and so I would say that it, it fits within traditional Protestantism in that sense, um, but certainly I, I would say it is at odds with portions of the Magisterial Reformation. Okay. Um, or it's just a different way of expressing it. It's a small tweak, right? But yeah, some of these things were fought through um, on the Magisterial side side of the Protestant Reformation a bit. Um, and um, yeah, I find myself in disagreement yeah. with wings of the Pro- of the Magisterial yeah. Reformation.
0: What would you find when you read like N.T. Wright on justification and final justification, do you find yourself in very close agreement with how he frames it or? Mostly. Um, yeah,
1: I would say that there's a, a, a fairly subtle point on which I think that um, probably um, the Reformed tradition is correct and right is wrong. Um, and I think that has to do with the word, the righteous, the phrase, the righteousness of God, oh. um, which, which right understands to be just covenant faithfulness. Um, so he understands that to be like covenant promises. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, the Protestant Reformation was fueled by an understanding that this— somehow or another we get the righteousness of God, that it becomes our own possession in some way so that we are right with God whenever we have um, right standing with God that is the righteousness of God. Um, And so anyway, Paul only uses this phrase, the righteousness of God, 10 times, but I think in four of the passages, I think it's more probable that it is something that we receive um, and that it is a right standing that we have. Um, So I think it actually means both covenant faithfulness and it means a right standing that we receive. Um, And yeah, I kind of worked through the D details of that in chapter 8 of Salvation by Allegiance Alone, mm-hmm. um, where I have a proposal for exactly what the righteousness of God means, okay. uh, and defend the idea that it does involve, on the one hand, God's faithfulness to His promises, but those promises find their fulfillment as Jesus Himself proves to be the righteous one, and that we have the opportunity to participate in His righteousness. So, I do think that um, mm-hmm. we, do, we do have a right standing with God, um, so I do think that um, on the one hand, I would agree with Wright's articulation of justification in the sense that it does have a, a past, present, and future dimension. Um, but his his um, choice to restrict the righteousness of God purely to God's covenant faithfulness and not see it as shared uh, with us would be something I disagree with and would agree with uh, more the Lutheran Reformed wing.
0: This episode is sponsored by Abide. Okay, so do you have trouble sleeping or do you battle anxiety and stress? Here's a little secret, I battle all these things. In fact, I've had a hard time sleeping like most of my life. Abide is the number one Christian meditation app. Health benefits reported by Abide users include less stress, lower depression and better sleep. And as many of you are learning, I'm sure, you know, quality sleep is so important for our mental, physical, and even spiritual health. That's why I'm so excited about Abide. My wife, she loves this app and she turned me on to it too. My favorite part of Abide are the meditations that read scripture and then offer devotional thoughts and prayers, but there's all kinds of features like stories for sleep and music and Bible reading plans. I love all the soothing sounds. So download the Abide app today and find peace in the midst of chaos. If you'd subscribe now, you can receive 25% off your first year when you sign up for the premium subscription by texting the promo code THEOLOGY to 22433. Okay, so text 22433, type in THEOLOGY and get 25% off your first year. So sleep better, pray more, and meditate on God's life-changing word with a Bible. Let, let's shift gears just slightly uh i got i want to talk about pistis Christu." so uh i, I don't even know if my audience i would say 90 percent of more than that listening probably don't even know that way back at when i really started getting into scholarship i spent about maybe three years like just fascinated with this debate about the meaning of pistis Christu," faith and then of christ um and it's, it, it occurred, I'm, uh, it's been so long since I even, it was like, it was my world for like a few years and then I moved on to other things. So, um, yeah. but yeah, like Romans three twenty two, I believe, three twenty six. Galatians mm-hmm. 3, is it 22? I think yep. Philippians, mm-hmm. is it Philippians 3, 9? Am I getting those right?
1: Uh, you got most of them right. I don't, I'm not sure about <laughs> Philippians 3, 9 off the top of my head <laughs> as you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, or maybe you know, 3, 8, 3, 8 or 3, uh, fully 9. immersed right now myself in that conversation, but. So
0: it. It's, it's an interesting construction because it's almost always translated, you know, by faith in Christ, meaning human faith in Christ. But the word Christ is in the genitive, which kind of, and genitive is it's kind of a, ve- it's kind of a capable of doing lots of stuff in a syntactical destruction, construction, not destruction. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the, the textbook translation of a genitive is of, so wait, so faith of Christ is it Christ's own faithfulness whereby we are justified or is it our faith in Christ whereby we're justified is the debate that's been raging on and i i kind of wanted to explore yeah. in the work that i did a you know a possible third option seeing faith as this you know like when paul talks about the coming of faith like this Christ that the event of the christ event you know it's, where it's 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 a more objective theological event rather than a subjective either our individual faith in Jesus or his individual faithfulness toward the father. Wow. I can't believe I, that, that's a, I think that's a pretty good summary <laughs> of something I haven't thought about in 15 years, but uh, yeah, good job. I'm curious what your, I mean, ever since I saw your, the title of your book, I'm like, oh, I wonder what this would do to the Pistis Christi debate. So how do you understand that debated phrase? Do you have yeah, kind of an alternative view rather than the. Subjective or objective?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm also assessing that myself and and trying to think through what I what I my current convictions are. Partly because there's a, an actually a very disruptive uh, and interesting piece of scholarship that's been produced recently. Uh, I'll give a shout out to Kevin Grosso uh, who wrote an article that was published in journal, uh, for theological, uh, sc- sorry, journal, uh, it's JSNT journal for the study of the new Testament, I guess is what JSNT yeah, is yeah. a major new Testament journal, uh, peer reviewed. Uh, and, uh, anyway, uh, in it, um, Grosso, um, I think gives definitive evidence, um, that, uh, that in fact, it cannot be an objective genitive. So that wow. the translation faith in Christ is wrong. Um, and, is is uh, obviously it's the traditional view and i think he shows that um it's not just a case of probability he shows that it's actually grammatically disallowed so it's not just like okay here's another piece of evidence to assess he shows he he shows evidence that that on a syntactical level that that construction is flat out disallowed. Um, so it's a complete game changer if he's right. And, um, it's a technical article that I, that I I don't want to try to fully explain for your audience, but he shows evidence that pistis is a specific kind of noun in relationship to its verb called Mm -hmm. what's called a deverbal verbal noun. Um, and in light of that, it, um, the arguments that um, the verb takes, like the, the the objects that it's allowed to take, m- has to mirror the objects that it takes as a noun if it's being n- used as a noun in a verbal way, which is is what the argument is in the pistis Christi debate. Anyway, uh, it's a fascinating article, but he um, argues against both the subjective and the objective ultimately, and favors a third way. So uh, you may you may actually find that um, that his view is quite close to uh, to your view, your third way view. Um, I myself have leaned toward the subjective genitive. Okay. I, I think that, um, that, uh, the faithfulness of Christ is the stronger reading. Um, and, uh, and so that's what I argue in my current books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, Grosso has made me rethink and um, and huh. to think more seriously about the third way. Um, Grosso's case, I think, is a knockout case against the objective genitive. I think he's proven it does not mean faith in Christ, Okay. Uh, and that's actually an impossible understanding, and I think that that view is going to collapse in the next 30, 30 years. It's going to take a while for it to trickle through all our translations, but eventually I think all of our English translations will be changed. It will not really? be translated that way. They'll probably just go to faith of Christ just to keep it safe, yeah. <laughs> but but, um, but I think it cannot mean faith in Christ, which is interesting if he's right. Um, but uh, but I don't think he doesn't – he doesn't offer the same knockout blow to the subjective genitive. He argues against it, but okay. um, I think that his argument is not fully convincing against it. Um, and um, it's a debate, I think, between the third way and the subjective at this point.
0: Theologically, the Bardian in me likes the subjective genitive reading. <laughs> like I was always attracted to that theologically. I just – I did feel like it was f- – felt a little forced sometimes when i was interacting with like like doug campbell and others who mm-hmm. like i don't i don't mm-hmm. know like i agree with i like your theological framework i'm just it's just not as yeah. linguistically satisfying as i want it to be um but has there been so mike bird and i co-edited this book called the faith of christ mm-hmm. a series of articles that address this i think that when was that like 2009 maybe yeah around what's then. the yeah, scholarship that been I, and so I haven't even looked at that. Has there been still? Is this still been an? Like, oh yeah, the last... there's
1: still stuff coming out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Grosso's is the. I mean, it's the coup de grace. I mean, it's like really. Uh, I mean, it's the piece that everyone's going to have to respond to now. Okay. Um. So it's it's a major. Um. It's the first thing that's come out in in, t- you know, twenty plus years on it that really decisively. You know. um, gives yeah, not just probabilistic evidence, but like maybe a knockout blow. So you got to read it. Yeah. If you, yeah. If you
0: I'll check it out. Got up
1: speed on it. You got to go back and read Grosso. Yeah. It's worthwhile. Um, so yeah, it's publishing on that topic continues to go, and I I've partly um, favored the subjective genitive for a variety of reasons, but I think it's interesting. For instance, in Romans one seventeen, uh, one sixteen and seventeen, when Paul talks about the gospel, you know in you know in the gospel, righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness, and then he uses the phrase ek pisteos, ace piston, and that phrase is an a, an interesting phrase, but I think it's best understood like something like by faithfulness uh, for faithfulness or. Or by hmm. loyalty for loyalty, and I think that first part actually where he is where he's talking about the loyalty of Jesus, right? That he was the yeah, faithful one, that. that he won salvation for us, and that he did that for for the sake of our loyalty, so that we could then give loyalty in response to his action, um, and so that we could then l- render loyalty to him because he's the king. Um, and I think we see that mapped onto, for instance, um, the pistis Christi debate in Romans three twenty one through twenty two, where again Paul talks about the faithfulness of the the Christ, but then it's for our faith, yeah. right, um, is, is how the construction goes, so, or for uh, those who believe—I'd have to uh, get out my Bible and look—but anyway, um, yeah, I think there's good reasons why we could see a split between the faithfulness of Christ and Him being the initiator, and then that being for the sake of our response, so that we can respond to Him as the faithful one, mm-hmm. right, so we can have an allegiance response to Him. So that's part of the reason I think the subjective is theologically stronger. I think it, it fits well into certain aspects of Paul's argument
0: man you're getting me excited about that again
1: <laughs> yeah you know it's one of those things yeah. where you're
0: so absorbed in it that you just need to be like uh I should get to get away from it just because like my you know I'm going to bed at night thinking about you know this argument or that argument. <laughs> just like yeah <laughs> kind of OCD when I get into <laughs> for sure topic, but
1: yeah, and so in circling sort of back in three twenty two, right. yeah, what Paul says in romans three twenty two he says, uh, the righteousness of God through uh, the faith of Christ for all who perform the faith action, for all who believe is right. how it's traditionally translated. but it's the it's the verb. So it's the faithfulness of the Christ, right? For all then who then perform the faith action in response, right? I think would be uh, one yeah. way of putting it together. anyway, um yeah, that's, yeah Cause uh, even
0: that phrase there, If it's by faith in Christ, for all who have faith in Christ, that seems a little... Kind of like a little tautologist. Tautologist? Is that the, like a tautologist yeah, yeah. Like saying it's the same thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: and that's that's part of the argument against the objective genitive. Yeah. yeah. But but I think Grasso smashed that argument. So it'll be interesting, interesting. to see how those who yeah. you know, who favored the traditional view, people like Doug Moo and Thomas Schreiner, who have argued for years for the traditional view, um, it'll be interesting to see how they respond, if they do respond, right? As I think their argument has been shattered by Grasso. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Let, um, shifting gears a little slightly again. Um, how much of your work um, has kind of the imperial cult as a background, or is that not really what you were doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's all in the background in the sense that I, yeah, I mean, I'm a New Testament scholar. I'm familiar
0: with like patron-client relationships and, yeah. you
1: know, the whole imperial cult. And, you know, I mean, I've yeah taken coursework on that. And um, But the reality is, is like to understand the basic idea, like most readers don't need all of that. I, I would say, as I'm making the case that pistis means allegiance, it just strengthens the view, right? So mostly what I do, I like occasionally would assert you know, like that this is part part of the background. There's not really a, a need to deeply explore that to substantiate my case. Okay. Right. As long as the imperial background is genuinely a background view, um, then then it, it's not that I need to trot everyone through all the evidence for that. So I would say like my my studies rely on on that as a a, a basic, you know, um truth about the world around Jesus that everyone would, I think, more or less agree to. Um and so I, yeah I didn't belabor it in my books it's it certainly stands as background
0: like do you think that when when Paul says you know confess Jesus as Lord everybody would have heard that kind of like that silent and therefore Caesar is not you know like how people often say like is it, is he when he's using faith is he does he have an eye on the on the empire, do you think? Or do you think that's it, maybe it's passage to passage depends or because he's clear. I mean, no, it, I think it, he, that is the, that it, faith is language used wide, widely in the political yeah. era of the day. Right. Yeah.
1: No, I don't think I don't think it would have been so, something along the lines of Jesus is Lord. Therefore, Caesar is not other than in the ultimate sense. Right. If there was ultimate claims made about who the ultimate Lord is like, well, yes, I think like Paul would say, Jesus is the cosmic Lord. Right. And Caesar mm-hmm. is not. Um, but I don't think that, that it's always cosmic in purview when we think about this. Caesar's lordship, right? Or anyone's lordship, right? To call somebody master or sir or lord, like, um, you know, th- there's an appropriate, like, sphere of domain, you know, a sphere of influence or domain, like, that people might have sovereignty over that is not necessarily always in com- competition with Jesus's sovereignty, right? And so, um, you know, if I'm lord of a household, right, that doesn't, like, just because Jesus is lord doesn't mean I'm not lord of a household, right? Um, like, those mm-hmm. are not necessarily in competition. It means that Jesus is the greatest lord, right, beyond that, right? So in the Greco-Roman world, like as that language of Lord, Lord was used. Um, so to the degree that Caesar was Lord, I think like Paul would have acknowledged, yeah, he's the master of the Roman Empire, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the reality. Um, I think he would have been saying, yes, Jesus is the greater cosmic Lord, and he subverts Caesar's lordship in many ways, but I don't think that it would have been a full-blown, therefore Caesar is not, right? I think that's probably too simple. I think it would there would have been nested ideas of lordship um, that would have helped nuance these kinds of things, right? That there was an awareness that lordship is not always competitive. But let's be honest, I mean, a lot of dimensions of Caesar's lordship wasn't directly in conflict with Jesus's way of being lord, so people would have heard that, for sure. Sure, right, and would have realized like a lot of what we're saying about Jesus—that he's the one who brings true peace, right? We realize the Roman Empire claims it, but it's not bringing true peace, right? It's it's right. It's, it's it's peace that's built on imperial power and on, you hmm. know, like um, you know, essentially subjugated foreign foreign empires that were on the fringe of the Roman Empire and then enslaving a lot of them. Like that's how the peace was built. What kind of peace is that, right?
0: I, yeah, yeah, totally. I but go, going back to the, I'm sorry, yeah, I want to tease out, I guess the. You know, that, that Caesar can still have his kind of Caesar-ish lordship, and that doesn't necessarily nullify Christ's lordship. But in, in the Roman conception though, right? I mean, and you would know more more about this than I would, you know, the, the lordship of Caesar was derived from, you know, the gods of Rome saying, No, you are you're you're an extension of the, you know, lordship of Rome or whoever over Jupiter over over the over the world. So to say, no, there's there's another, a Jewish God whose son was crucified by Roman power. No, he's actually Lord. Even if you say, well, just in the divine ultimate sense, I think even if you say that, that still would be a slight on the origins even of Caesar's claim to lordship. Is that- sure, yeah.
1: Yeah, because the Caesars are increasingly making claims to being, like, not just Lord, but God, right, yeah. and um, and in an ultimate sense, right? Yeah, so I do, it's, to the degree that an ultimate claim is being made, you know, by a Caesar for lordship, you know, I think, yes, that um, the Jesus is Lord claim, right, as that's packaged with the idea that Jesus is the incarnate, you know, like, like that he's God incarnate, right, that he's um, taken on human flesh for our sake, all those kinds of claims that are part of the gospel. Yeah, certainly they subvert, like, any claims to Caesar's ultimate God. Godhood or lordship in that kind of divine sense, right, that we see a push in that direction. And some of the Caesars resist it, right, and they don't really actually want divine accolades or are reticent about it. Others are like, give me more,
0: right, <laughs> kind of like Nero, um, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. Even when resist it, I was reading, I'm reading uh, Bruce Winters' work, and he has a great section yeah. on, on you know, when they are resisting it, people not watching won't get this, but it's kind of like, no, no, but they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't build yeah. a temple for me you know, but if you do, here's how to plant, you know, like, (laughs) yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, the cities were in competition to offer divine honors and to have the opportunity to build temples for the Caesars. Right. And so, I mean, even the fact that like, there was that kind of patron client dimension to things like that, you know, they wanted to like appropriately honor, like the one who had brought salvation to the Roman world by building a, a temple to honor him. And that cities would have competed for the privilege of doing that shows us a lot about, Um, about what the true landscape was like on the ground level, especially in Asia Minor, right? Right. As as those who have done careful studies of this work say, like the imperial cult was really strong in certain areas, like especially like, you know, where we find, you know, the seven letters of revelation, like Asia Minor was a hotbed you know, of, of, of the imperial cult. And right. so is it any surprise, right? That that's where we find the greatest conflict between Jesus's style of kingship and a great call to show pistis to him, right? And we see passages like revelation two 13, like where it's like really clearly affirms the need to show pistis to Jesus, uh, and is being connected to ultimate salvation. Right. And we can't just capitulate, uh, before, uh, the, the, um, the imperial cult.
0: Interesting. Tell us about your, um, well, you haven't, so you have, so you're, the book we've been really kind of talking about is Salvation by Allegiance Alone. You also have another one, Gospel Allegiance. Is that, is that extending your work or is that like a, a kind of a more popular version of, of, of the older one? And then you have another one coming out, Why the Gospel in 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 May. Yeah. Tell us yeah. It, You seem to be really fast, for a guy who, you know, isn't Protestant, <laughs> just kidding. You seem to like this gospel stuff. So yeah, I do like the gospel.
1: Um, yeah, salvation by allegiance alone was the initial work, and um, you know, it was published under an academic imprint, so it was Baker Academic. But I tried to make it as popular as I could, like within an academic imprint. Um, but gospel allegiance then is both a deepening and a popularization, which sounds contradictory. But um, what I did is I went more narrow, like I I, I, I kind of looked at just the core model. So salvation by allegiance alone is kind of a wide-ranging kind of piece, like it deals with a lot of aspects of salvation. And so in gospel allegiance, I said, let's just look at the core. Like, what is the gospel? What is faith? What is grace? What are works? Uh, And how do they all interrelate? Okay, like, so it's really just dealing with the core. And that's why I was able to go deeper, was because I just kind of narrowed my focus and went more deeply on each one and added some specificity. So I actually think it's a more authoritative articulation even of my model than Salvation by Allegiance alone offered. Um, So I do some things to clarify some things in Salvation by Allegiance alone, but but I actually just, you know, more uh, do a deep, a deeper dive. Um, and then, um, the, why the gospel book that's, uh, in May, I'm super excited about it. I haven't been as excited about a book, um, for quite a a while. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, um, is actually looking at not what is the gospel, but like, why did God give the gospel and Mm -hmm. why is it still compelling today? So there's been so many books that have written, like answering the question, what is the gospel? I've even written one. I wrote a little book called The Gospel Precisely. And it's a super important question. We we all want to know what the gospel is, as we need to share it with other people. But maybe the more important question is, why did God give it? Right. Mm -hmm. And um, surprisingly, nobody has written a book Um, that has dealt at least explicitly with that theme. I mean, obviously there are books that touch on aspects of that, Um, but um, yeah, I'm excited about what that book might offer the Church. Um, So on the one hand, like, looks at Scripture, like, why did God give the the Gospel from a Scriptural standpoint? What's its purpose, right? Or its multiple purposes, as we dive in deeply, right? Um, But on the other hand, like, why is it still good news today, especially for the nuns and duns, right? People who are, you know, just leaving the Church, uh, not interested, they don't think that the Church has anything to offer them today. Why is is still the best possible news, right? So it's really working on those those two fronts.
0: Also, oh, so. does it have an eye on the nuns and the duns, the people that it are- It does. Kind of, okay. Yeah, I have a chapter, a chapter uh,
1: that's explicitly aimed in that direction, but really more than one chapter does lend itself toward that conversation.
0: Okay. Did, yeah. you, did you ever go through any kind of deconstructive journey or, I mean, that's a, that's a broad, imprecise word. He, but, yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I would say not really, Um, you know, it's more been a slow growth for me of learning and like, you know, casting away some things that I, you know, like could no longer hold. But that was partly because I grew up in a really conservative fundamentalist church like King James only um, Mm -hmm. and love the people there. They're great people. And so I've never felt bitter about that heritage or anything like that. I mean, I still admire the people who are involved. They love Jesus. They love me. Right. Um, And that's the most important thing in the world. Right. Um, I wouldn't be a Christian today without them. So how could I ever be bitter about that? So that's always made it hard for me to deconstruct. Right. I had like such a great experience within even a fundamentalist, you know, kind of um, experience that I had that was intellectually like non-adventurous, like, and, you know, like we should only read the Bible kind of thing, you know, was uh, maybe the mindset within that, um, that camp. Uh, then, you know, as I, as I went to college and uh, the more I learned, the more I realized I, I probably couldn't, you know, maybe I should read the Bible and not just the King James version. I had to give that up. Right. You know, um, some things like that, that, uh, you know, um, were part of my growth process and you just learn more and you slowly refine your views. But, um, yeah, I, I, it's more been a deepening for me of my love for the Lord and mm-hmm. um, joy in serving Him more than a deconstruction. I would say
0: that's good. I'm, I'm going to reuse that phrase. I'll give you credit. Intellectually non-adventurous. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, re- I'll let you go, but uh, tell us really quick about your podcast because you, you have a podcast that's very similar to this one in many ways, and that you're a you're an academic biblical scholar, but you're do- you're talking about all kinds of different things. Um, yeah. Us, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, our niche, uh, script is the name of our podcast. Um, it was started by myself and uh, um, my friend Matt Lynch. Uh, and uh, we were friends from way back in Regent, Col- Regent College. Um, so anyway, he's a professor at Regent now. Uh, Regent uh, was smart enough to rehire him. Uh, and uh, he teaches Old Testament there. But we um, we primarily interview around um, new academic work in biblical studies or theology, so we're definitely on the academic end of the mm-hmm. spectrum. Like, I think you're broader. Um, you do academic stuff, and you do real pop stuff. Um, we tend to—we occasionally do more popular stuff, but we mostly land on the academic end. So a new book that maybe advances the conversation in biblical studies or okay. theology in some important way, uh, we try to read the book and snag that person and bring them on and uh, and chat about their book so it it mostly focuses on author interviews around you know new titles and biblical studies and theology but we've loved it it's been it's been a blast who are uh, some of do. your
0: favorite so, people you've had on
1: oh uh, well mike bird as we already mentioned like he's a he's been a frequent guest scott mcknight uh, we had john barclay I talked about his paul yeah. and the gift that was one of our first interviews we did i, I loved getting to talk about oh. uh, paul and the gift a super important book on grace that's yeah. come out um Uh, Gosh, like choosing favorites is like, you know, naming your favorite children. It just it just (laughs) seems mean, you know, but um, no, there's been lots of fun interviews over the years. I'll say a personal favorite for me was Richard Hayes uh, because he he was one of my most admired scholars when I was doing graduate graduate work. I did my Ph.D. on Paul in the Old Testament. Um, And so he's like Richard Hayes is like the definitive figure in that conversation on Mm -hmm. how did Paul use the Old Testament. Right. Um, So I loved getting an interview Hayes. Yeah. Um, that was a real blast for me.
0: Have you interviewed uh, Bacham? No, we have not had Bauckham,
1: Um, which is probably an oversight on our part. Um, no, I've been we, wanting to. I just should... don't.
0: I think he's getting pretty old. So I don't know he if is. he's like yeah. into like yeah. podcast interviews or whatever, but uh, I don't
1: know. Yeah. I don't know how much he does that. Um, but yeah, it would be great to get Bacham at some point is, yeah, obviously I've read lots of his, his work and interacted yeah. with it some, um, as a scholar. And I, I do I deeply admire, you know, his Jesus and the eyewitnesses book, his book on the theology of revelation. Um, I mean, he's also written Bible commentaries has been helpful to me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then, um, uh, of course he has that, that book, God crucified, right? Is that the name of it? I think that's the name of it either. God um, crucified
0: of the crucified God. He's playing off of Mulholland's
1: yeah. earlier work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's whatever that was. That but that short little book on Christology um, it's is very thoughtful. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. And on the the divine identity, the Christology of divine identity, which I don't <laughs> yeah. really like that language. Um, but um, <laughs> nevertheless, his proposal is super interesting and worth worth discussing and thinking through.
0: Well, he shows so, in that book. I mean, gosh, it's been probably twenty years since I read it. But like that, there was you know, um, historic Jewish credibility to a concept of a, of a, what do you say? Like, I mean the Trinity, but just broadly speaking, like kind of multiple divine figures within one God or however he worded it. And he showed from Judaism that the Christian claim of a triune God would not be, historically out of step, like it was, it was,
1: yeah, it was yeah, moment. no, that's been hugely influential. I, I I did work along those lines. And hmm. so I wrote a book called the birth of the Trinity that yeah. like does some stuff like that looks at the old Testament. It's actually basically on how early Christians, new Testament authors and beyond were reading the old Testament and how that contributed to the idea that there are multiple divine persons. Wow. So I've done work directly on that, um, and, um, and engaged bockham's proposal there. Um, and so, yeah, it's been important work for me and I love bockham um, uh, I, d- I don't like that language of divine identity, and I want to okay. press him a little bit more there <laughs> yeah. um, as to what what exactly that means. As I prefer the idea of like of divine persons, that's the traditional way of speaking. Um, I don't sure li- I like the idea of divine um, identity as yeah. as, a, as a way of talking about unity, but um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, good stuff.
0: He's sure. got to be my. F- I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite, like you said. I, I like different scholars for different things, but I he's got to be my number one just just because. Well for two reasons one the the he spans so many oh, different yeah. disciplines and yet everything he touches it's like Quality. a game changer. I was doing yeah. research in I mean so he's a he's primarily a Jesus guy but you know book revelation kind of the general epistles but then um he's got a book on politics that I picked up that's incredible um he yeah, he's brilliant. I, I then I, I was doing I, I have a whole chapter in my dissertation on uh, a a first-century Jewish work called Pseudo Philo is is the you know, uh, or sometimes it's the the Latin, uh, the uh, lab Liber Antiquatum Biblicarum or something like that. I mean, yeah, it's, just, I it's kind of an obscure, it's a little niche thing. And then when I'm doing research on yeah. it, I'm like, oh, I discover Richard Bachum yeah. has done the most definitive work on Philo's interpretation of the old testament i'm like Gosh, I can't. everywhere i figures. run in the biblical studies area he's just yeah. there as kind of like oh he wrote this game-changing article this game-changing book you know i mean yeah oh, his, his range is incredible oh, yeah. yeah, yeah it's so good anyway um dude thanks so much for coming on the show you've given us a, a lot to think about i know that this is more on the heady academic uh k- kind of interview but my my audience dude they're um whether or not they're professional academics i think they love this stuff so thanks so much for giving us yeah um, a lot to think about man
1: hey well yeah thanks and th- thanks to all your listeners too for for hearing me out yeah. great conversation <laughs> preston i enjoyed it
0: Hey friends, have you been blessed or encouraged or challenged by Theology in the Raw? If so, would you consider joining Theology in the Raw's Patreon community? For as little as five bucks a month, you can gain access to a diverse group of Jesus followers who are committed to thinking deeply, loving widely, and having curious conversations with thoughtful people. We have several Membership tiers where we where you can receive premium content. For instance, silver level supporters get to ask and vote on the questions for our monthly Patreon-only podcast. They also get to see like written drafts of various projects and books I'm working on, and there's other perks for that tier. Gold level supporters get all of this, and access to monthly Zoom chats where we basically blow the doors open on any topic they want to discuss. My patrons play a vital role in nurturing the mission of Theology and raw. And for me, just personally, interacting with my Patreon supporters has become one of the hidden blessings in this podcast ministry. So you can check out all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Theology and That's patreon.com forward slash Theology and